2020 marks the 50th birthday of Griffin Theatre Company's home, the Stables Theatre. I'm Angela Caterns. Join us as we celebrate the anniversary in this special series of podcasts where we'll hear about the theatre's history and talk to some of the country's most celebrated artists. Playwright and theatre director Wesley Enoch and actor and playwright Maine Wyatt welcome both to our podcast celebrating 50 years of the Stables Theatre. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. So let's talk about Wesley's play first, The Story of the Miracles at Cookie's Table. Can you explain it, uh, briefly what that's about? Uh, the story is of Annie, uh, a, a woman who's come back after the death of her mother, but also her estranged son has come back after the death of his grandmother who obviously raised him. And there's this whole tension about why Annie abandoned the family, who Nathan's father is, and this whole sense of story of the past playing itself out in their present relationship. And in the end, it's really about how they write the future story, what they want the world to be like, that um, ends the play. Mm. Was that your first play, Wesley? No, no. I, I'd written, in fact, it's 25 years since I wrote Seven Stages of Grieving with Deborah Malman. That was when I was 25. And I'm, I'm, in fact, 50 this year as well. So the whole idea stables me. Oh, that's yeah. a lovely. Well, it feels like we both need a little bit of spack filler too. So <laughs> all of that. But so you were known as a director, I think, first. Where, when did you begin to write for this stage? Uh, it is, it's interesting. They all came at the same time. Like, uh, Deborah Malman, Wayne Blair, Leah Purcell, we were all around, you know, within about five years of each other, hanging around in Brisbane. And um, we were with a company called Coimbra Jadara that we all helped set up, and Leif Charlton, Roxanne McDonald, and a number of others. And in that company, we would act, and, and I was not a very good actor. <laughs> Don't go laughing, Maine. No, but it was not my thing. And I remember as a bunch of actors, we were saying, oh, well, well, you know, we need a director. Let's, you know, who's going to direct? I'll tell you what to do. Come with me. And then we said, oh, we should write our own material. So let's write it. And it was that thing of when you don't know what you don't know, you just get in the middle of it and do it. Yeah. And it's not until later that people tell you it was good or not good or or how you learnt the way. And so 25 years on, it was one of those things that – my first play basically got my second play, got my third play. And directing was always another way of writing for me, like working with brand new plays. The first time you get it onto a stage is like you're writing it into life as a director. You're interpreting what's on the page, whether you've written it or not. And the final act of getting it on stage completes the writing because it puts it in front of an audience. Mm-hmm. And so let's talk about your play, Maine, City of Gold. It was staged at the Griffin quite recently? Yes, to, uh, in August. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so and that was it. your first work as a playwright? Uh, first work writing anything, really. So, <laughs> um, oh, you know, I, it was always something that I wanted to do in my career. Was it? But <laughs> I thought it would be something eventual, but uh, I thought now or never, so... Started writing in 2017 and then we got it up. Because you'd have a successful career as an actor, of course, before then. And so writing this story, was that something that you had to do? Oh, yeah, for sure. I think um, at the time this was just off the back of my dad passing. So I'd gone through the grief of that and then at that point it, I was almost uh, maybe disillusioned with the industry a little bit because I was going out for the same work all the time. 
And I thought, you know, if I'm not going to be uh, seen for these particular types of roles, then I'm just going to have to write it. So then I decided to write the play. And then that, in turn, helped me deal with the grief of losing my dad. And so it was, you know, knocking these things down all at the, all at the same time. So um, the process was really um, a cathartic experience, but also something that I wanted to make sure I was enlightened and enriched my career, I suppose. Mm-hmm. When you say you're always up for the same roles, what were they? I was usually the angry young man, which is a stereotype that is for a lot of Indigenous male actors um, that is, you know, has got me through the door in my first couple of shows and, and, and those stories need to be told, but I, I felt like I'd, I'd done that and I was wanting a new challenge and something new, something fresh. Mm-hmm. Wesley, you saw Maine's play? It was amazing. I mean, he, I've said it to him, but the structure of it, the ability to get all of that, that incredible voice. I saw it at Griffin, and people who saw it in Brisbane at, um, at QT as well. You know, Bill Brown Theatre. Bill Brown Theatre, a beautiful new space. But people said that because of the how tight the Griffin space is, how intimate, how right in front of you it all is. And I think I sat in the front row. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I went with, I went with a, 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 an older friend who couldn't kind of get up the stairs, but I sat in the front row and I went, oh, that's all right, they'll cope. <laughs> but that amazing power and, and that monologue that comes in the second act, like that I think is the best work I've ever seen you do, Maine. It was powerful. It was contemporary. It, it moved everyone in the audience. And not just because it's so close, but because of the 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 situation you'd set up in the first act and I, look and I should say right at the very end if people get a chance to read the play I was surprised when the final scene happens and the whole play moves like a uh, like don- dominoes and it all falls in the opposite direction to the one you would think it was going and suddenly you just felt this rush of story kind of come upon you I think it was a masterful stroke and you as an actor you know don't ever give up acting you're like you're brilliant but your writing was so insightful. It was amazing to watch. Mm-hmm. Does that mean much coming from uh, Wesley, all that uh, oh, no, it's flattery? flattery? Yeah, it's very flattering. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you for those kind words. No, I think um, obviously Wesley's been in the industry for so long and he's um, allowed and a lot of people... You just called uh, me old. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> you just told years, us. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, like, like Wesley said and... Other Indigenous practitioners have opened doors for younger uh, creatives like myself um, to come through. And so those barriers, you know, the steps that come through every time uh, another new creative comes along. So you always pay homage, but then you also want to do something different too. Yeah. Yeah. And so the city of gold is Kalgoorlie, where you grew up? Yes. So I wanted to make sure I was uh, representing, you know, where I'm from because it was a particular voice that uh, needed to be told but also specific to a region and ideas and things coming out of there that needed to be uh, realised on this side of the country because mm. um, I think there's a problem, systemic problem with racism there. So I wanted to talk about that in the play. And how much of the play is your story, Maine? <laughs> um, oh, look, it, it's, it's about an actor that lives in the Sydney that comes home to Kalgoorlie <laughs> and his dad's just passed away. So uh, I drew a lot from my own personal experiences, but you know, there's enough there to make it feel like, you know, who says my story is, is you know, interesting. So I made sure I put in a little um, little sugar on top so, to sweeten the deal. But, yeah, now there's there's other things in there just so I had a bit of artistic licence. But it's that interesting thing that most Indigenous writers, uh, there's um, 
a perception that we can only write biographical or autobiographical material and that the that even if you are drawing on your own life there is a creative act to that that there's no way you can tell the truth half the time because you know the truth is either too complex or too too hurtful and mm. so you find these kind of creative layers but it's interesting like the like so cookie's table that we talked about before because i set it on an island and my family we come from strabroke island and they said oh it's all about you and you, and and i was going no well in as much that every character is me every character speaks with my voice because that's the nature of writing but this pigeonhole that people want to put Indigenous writing into and saying, well, you're only capable of telling the authentic story that's your story. And I, I worry because it stops Indigenous writers from thinking about huge acts of fantasy or the ability to create these these fictional worlds. They think they'll want to, that's not what we want from you. We want you to only tell the truth because your truth is so powerful. And I like to say that storytelling is all forms of truth. And as long as it rings true, it doesn't have to be, oh, I lived it or Maine lived it and therefore it's true and we can prove it in the history books. That sense of saying this, that what we're trying to do is create narratives that shift people a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so was Cookie's Stable um, your first connection with the Stables Theatre? Well, I saw shows there, but yeah, my first time as a, as an artist uh, being there. But um, I remember seeing Michael Gow's work, Live Acts on Stage, a fascinating work. It was this kind of um, retelling of Greek mythology and and it was, again, this intimacy of the space. It was able to, with nothing much on stage, I think there was even just one chalk line along the wall, and the actors just created everything in front of you the whole time. I mean, one of the things about that space, when you're talking about history, the theatrical history, at least in this country, that you can pinpoint stages around the country that have been modelled on that corner, rightly or wrongly, like Belvoir Street modelled on that corner, the Bill Brown Theatre modelled on that corner, Octagon in Perth, I mean, you, you just find all these different. Even the old Wharf One, um, Vivian Fraser worked on that one as well. The sense that the corner is a very unique space in Australia, and you can pinpoint it all the way to the stables and say, because when when Nimrod was first there, its antecedents. So everyone's kind of goes back to that moment as a starting point for the intimacy of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Did you like working in that space too, Maine? Yeah, well, when I graduated from acting school, my first two shows were at Griffin. The first show was The Brothers Size at and the Griffin Independent. So I was getting paid peanuts for, you know, two months' work. But the experience of being in that space and that kind of opened the door for me acting-wise and uh, offered me a lot of opportunities from there. And then I went straight back-to-back into the Griffin main stage with Silent Disco, Lachlan Philpott's play. So though Griffin kind of like birthed my acting career I suppose in in the professional realm and I think Sam Strong was the artistic director at the time and Lee Lewis was my director so it was funny that it it ended up my first play Sam was artistic director at Queensland and then Lee was the artistic director at Griffin and they both got me to come back at Griffin Um, so it kind of came full circle with my acting career to my writing career so and the intimacy of that space as a actor's delight because you get the boundaries of uh, performing in a, in a bigger space you have to hit the person in the back row but in that space it's so close and so clear you're almost on top of the actors that you don't it's almost filmic in, in a lot of ways um, you still have that, that performance that is larger than life but 
you it's it's heightened by that space. Is it a bit daunting too? You know, is it sometimes a little bit um, I don't know, scary? I th- uh, well, you you're exposed more, and you, you're all warts and everything, so um, everyone can see every little moment. There's no faking in there. So, and if people know when you're not you're not given a hundred percent, but obviously that's not the aim. But you know, yeah, there's there's no hiding in that space, but. I've always loved, that's what I love about that space is that you can, you know, you're right there and you're arm's length. Yeah. And sometimes you're tripping over people's feet. (laughs) (laughs) Wesley, when did you begin writing and what were your observations at the time of the theatre scene in Australia? Uh, I mean, we're talking about the early 90s and I was working mostly with young kids and this notion of by telling our stories, we write onto the public record a history that was either neglected or, or denied. And there was a sense that in we're talking at after 88 and that whole kind of re-examining of what Australian identity could be, would be, and, you know, once all that left, the early 90s was this really quite fecund time of growth of Indigenous voices, First Nations voices. And in fact, between 88 and 93, most of the Indigenous arts infrastructure we see now jumped into existence. When you think about theatre companies like Yuri Yarkin, Ilbidjuri, Mughalan was a little later, but Bumali as an art gallery here was just slightly before, I think it was 87, Bangara, all of these companies came into existence because I think there was an openness, a need to tell the stories and to hear the stories. And it was interesting to then see by the time you get through to John Howard's time and the kind of reconciliation movement was almost being stomped on, the voices were already in existence. And I think the investment that we saw then, both investment in talent, money investment, is paying off now. Deborah Malman and just on television now on ABC, you go, fabulous. Look at her. She's just eating it all up. She's amazing. But then you've also got Darren Dale behind the scenes and Rachel Perkins as the director. And you start to realise that we've got more depth. There may have been, I'd say in the 80s, this ceiling that lots of people hit and couldn't get beyond. You know, um, Lydia Miller, uh, Rhoda Roberts, who were as performers, incredibly powerful, hit the ceiling and then found that there was no next opportunity. And they found opportunities in different ways. And I think in about 10 years' time, when Deborah's in her early 50s, Rachel Mazza will be in her late 50s, um, but Ursula Jovich will be of age, uh, Irma Woods. I mean, there'll be huge numbers of people who will have multiple generations. And what I've loved about watching Maine's work is not just is he an incredible leader in terms of a, as an artist, but also his ability, his fearlessness to just go in there and, and take things by the throat, give it a bit of a shake, and then not take it so personally, you know, like to sit back and go, see what I can do? Look at that. The skills of it is quite amazing. And I, I reckon in the next 20 to 30 years, we will have people in their 70s and 80s who will have had continuous work throughout their career, which not many people have done. Mm-hmm. Do you agree, mate? No, I, I do agree. I think... Um Every generation has a has a voice, and it's it's always um, backed up from the one before. And I think what I'd try to come through is, as Wesley just said, I wanted to make sure that there was something different, something mm-hmm. in, a, in a change. And Griffin has been allow- allowed me to have that platform because I, when I started writing the, the show, I made sure that 
this is going to go the way that I want it to. And I, I didn't want a filtered voice. And if it did, it could sit on the shelf and I don't care. It can gain dust because that wasn't the aim. The aim, the fact that I got to do it and perform it was like the cherry on top. But the fact that I wrote it and went, okay, I've, I've got this at two the, uh, major theatre companies. That was my aim. And I, I was successful in that. And then, yeah, I get to act in it and perform in front of people. And then it becomes another conversation in the Australian and Indigenous lexicon i suppose you know yeah. um it's another voice along with all those other voices so yeah. it's it's the first show and um hopefully it won't be the last so we'll, we'll keep going to you know make sure that there's there's voices and those voices continue and what was the audience reaction like uh look it was very different um i think because you are the intimacy of the space and you are right there when you got to the end of the show there was a lot of silence and you got down to the forehead afterwards and people would be congratulating you and giving you you know lovely things to say but there was also a moment of pause which I can see that it affected people in a, in a positive way but it also um, was informative in, in ways that I think uh, hadn't hit in that way in a, maybe a while. So It was interesting because at the very end of the play as I said the scene, the, the final scene, reorders the whole understanding of the play for you. And I remember at I gave a standing ovation. And I was the only one standing, I think, at the time because everyone was a bit shell-shocked. And I remember thinking, you're never going to get a second or a third call out of this because everyone's still in the, in the moment reeling from it. And I think audiences, by their very nature, are inarticulate about what they've just felt. And it'll take maybe a day or a week, and it's the kind of play – City of Gold that will just stay with people forever and that they'll remember this particular moment. I mean, the, the issue for me is the number of Indigenous writers who've written one play, you can, you know, the, oh, not 30, 40, there's heaps of them. The people who've written a second play or a third play, you can count on one hand. And what we need to do is not just encourage the writers through beautiful, intimate experiences like City of Gold, but also the Indigenous dramaturgy. And um, Isaac Drandage, the director of, the, of City of Gold, who's just fabulous, he's got that kind of insight. It, the ability to say, as a, a First Nations person, these are the through lines, these are the dramaturgical things we want to follow. And what I think that gives an audience is, you know, we were talking about the authenticity before, it gives the sense of, oh, this little shock, this little kind of jolt out of a complacency of their own worldview and they realise they're watching an Indigenous theatre piece. And there's been this ongoing discussion about who owns the the title Indigenous theatre. If you have a non-Indigenous writer but an Indigenous director, if you have a, you know, there's all this, all you know, the whole secret river kind of conversation that, you know, goes round and round. And often it's that discussion's more valuable than any kind of position. And this wonderful thing of saying City of Gold for me is where you just got you felt that jolt and you realise what it is when it's out front in front of you because it's uncompromisingly familiar to every black fella in the house and a shock of the new to almost every white fella. Mm, wow. Are you writing anything else at the moment, <laughs> Mayan? Uh, I might be in the process of, of writing something at the moment. So you might we'll, be. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, until it's announced, until I'm there performing on opening night, th- then I'll, I'll know it's signed, sealed, delivered. I'm, I'm, I'm that type of person. I think when you're an actor, you can't afford to hold on to things when people go like, oh, we're going to do this. You, you don't know until you're there. Do you think you'll only ever, when you write something, mm. you always write for yourself to act in it? Yeah, or? pretty much. <laughs> um, I think <laughs> Make your own work. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's, uh, I think there's a particular voice that, or in the way that my writing is that, like I, I want things to be said, well, the intention to be there, and 
I think that that's what I wanted to do with the first play. I think this next one that I, I could be writing, um, <laughs> I think I think I there is there's a certain voice that I also want to articulate there as well. But it's also I want something fresh and something new as well, and I want to see other people say what what's I've gotten written and their interpretation, which is the fun part of putting work together, is um, and especially your own writing is hearing other people say it and going, yeah. oh yeah, that's interesting. I never thought about it like that when. They say the line differently, or they interpret it differently. So mm-hmm. I find it interesting, though, that there's a real hunger for indigenous stories, and you know the the development time. You know, they just keep trying to pull things out, and you go, you know, where is the two years of development? Where is the thoughtfulness around that? And the 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 danger I reckon is that people's need outstrips our ability to to write it in, in a thoughtful way that's right for us. Um, I look at Nakia Louie, who's a fabulous writer, and you could just go, things need time, don't... But because the need is so great in Australia, when there's a great talent like Maine out there, they just grab hold and say, come on, more, 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 more. Mm. And where do you, when do you say, mm. under these circumstances and under this timeline is best for us? Yeah. And so Wesley is artistic director of the Sydney Festival. Oh, do you that's have, right. I do, oh, that. Oh, yeah. you do, do that. Do you even have time to write anymore? I've been writing the same play for eight years. <laughs> it's outrageous. When might we see that? Uh, well, look, I finished at the Sydney Festival in February 2021. And it's interesting because I've spent 10 years now in charge of these big mainstream organisations, the Queensland Theatre Company and then the Sydney Festival. And after 10 years of doing that, great skills, great opportunities, I'm not being too nasty about it, but I actually think all I've been doing is shoehorning into each of those organisations the things I think are important, bringing our voices to the mainstream and all that kind of stuff and getting those resources to play with. And what I want, I turn 50 and I think the next 10 years of my life where I've got this high energy, I think it's about doing the things I think are important as central not just kind of so I don't know how that'll manifest, but writing's one of those things. Mm-hmm. Supporting others is another way. Maybe directing some more. Though I don't know. I, it, it, there comes a world comes a time when the world says to you, "You're you're past it. You're gone," and you have to transition into being an elder, being a supporter. And I don't, I'm not there yet. Don't shut up. Don't, don't laugh too <laughs> <No>. much. <laughs> but you know that moment when the world says, "Okay, now you transition. Now you're an elder." Mm. And so. We talk a lot about diversity in theatre. Am I right in saying you've become a board member of the Griffin Main? Is that right? I have, yes. Congratulations. I think that's fantastic. So what kind of change would you like to see in uh, Australian theatre in general? I think diversity is is a big component in that and hearing voices from diverse backgrounds. I feel like every major theatre company has started to move in that direction, but I still don't think it's enough. I think there's not enough risk. I feel like I see a Shakespeare up every year again, again, and again. I feel like I'm hearing and seeing the same people a lot. So, uh, look, I'm trying to be optimistic about it, you know, because you want those positive outcomes. But I think I think it, there still needs more and more, you know. And you'll see work that aren't in the major theatre companies that is interesting and thrilling and you're hearing people from uh, Sydney's West and you're seeing shows that are just a voice of fresh and young people saying things that you go, whoa, that's, there's, a, there's a generational voice that is uh, opposing to what has come before them, which I think is interesting and, and um, what I would like to see more of. That's the great thing about being a part of Griffin is that they're predominantly new Australian work. 
and that's what I, what what I, excites me about the theatre company and why I you know decided like, I wanted to push my play there. Fantastic. What about you, Wesley? Uh, look, I'm really drawn to some statistics there that 42% of all Australians were either born overseas or have a parent born overseas, but that's not reflected in our theatre so much. In terms of Aboriginal population, almost 50% of the Aboriginal population is under 30 which is an inverted kind of population pyramid when you think about, you know, the baby boomers and all that kind of stuff, which is basically government policy enacted in our lives, babies living, and that's what we're seeing in the last 30 years. And our theatre has to keep in touch with that. And one of the the biggest things uh, I know at the Australia Council where I sit on a committee there, one of the big issues is saying intergenerational transfer of knowledge is so important, not just from the old to the young, but from the young to the old, uh, well, older perhaps, but this notion of how we work together and how we stay open to these new voices. What I'm finding incredibly disappointing in the mainstream theatres is that economic kind of rationalism takes over and they become more and more risk-averse to the new voices or the challenging voices. And when they do sometimes take on a new voice, it's only in the form of comedy or it's only in the form of farce. And you go, come on, you've got to actually stay open to all forms of of engagement with an audience. And that the the, the aversion to risk is one of those things. That's why we're subsidised. We're here to be the storytellers of the clan. And I worry that the large companies don't always engage with that. And so, therefore... A small theatre like the stables oh. is vital. Oh, more than vital. In in fact, it's. I, I think when I ran the Queensland Theatre Company, you look to Griffin because you go, what are they doing? And who can I go down there and you know, get the next play from or kind of connect up with or all those things? Where, uh, when you think about gender parity, Griffin was always there. When you're thinking about culturally diverse voices, Griffin's there doing it. When you think about new voices and new work, Griffin's right in the middle of it. When you're thinking about the historic Australian voice, Griffin's right there. You look to them because they're at, they are the pulse of what's coming. That's fantastic. A pleasure and a delight to speak to you both. Thank you so much, Wayne, uh, Maine and Wesley. Thank you very much. Or, or Wayne, if you were. Wayne, oh, <laughs> at last, at last. We're a couple. Looking forward to it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Griffin's special podcast series where we're celebrating 50 years of the stables. For more anniversary activities, head to Griffin's website, griffintheatre.com.au. 